This is Car Expert. Although this car is built on the bones of the 370 and although it uses an Infiniti engine and I think Nissan could have got away with charging a bit more for this. Generally, I think Mazda products are pretty good and I was interested to see how they would go with a product that they want to compete with X3 GLC Q5. They sent us down this fire trail, which one, had not been cleared. The underbodies of all of these Grand Cherokee Ls will have been completely exfoliated. Hello, my name's Mandy Turner. Good day, James Wong. Hello, you called me first today. <laughs> Your name just popped into my head first. Hello, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy. You called me second today. I, I did, but we'll talk about your car first, just to make it all nice and even. Um, you've been driving the Subaru WRX. As a former Subaru owner, you'd be pretty um, happy to get behind the wheel of this, Rexy. Absolutely. I don't want to give too much away because there's actually two reviews that have come out of the launch and a whole lot to talk about. But yeah, the new Rex is kind of a big deal. There's no STI anymore. Subaru's killed that sort of internal combustion part of the STI team. So they'll do accessories and things, but they won't do a full WRX STI. So this is kind of the brand's performance flagship. And we're used to the WRX just like gradually evolving with small performance increases and incremental changes. This is actually quite a big change. It's got a 2.4-litre turbo engine, which we'll talk about a bit later on, actually, when it comes to the Outback. Um, But it's built on the new Subaru Global Platform, and it's designed to be a little bit more refined and comfortable and quiet. So the WRX for the bank robber who also likes to get dressed up and take his partner out on Friday night, I guess. Um, You can still get a manual sedan. You can still get a CVT. And they now do a wagon, which is the Lavorg overseas, but in Australia gets the WRX engine. I suppose the brief version of the review is there's actually a lot of differences between the models. I would, off the top of my head, have a manual mid-spec car in the sedan, which is on passive dampers and feels quite firm and sporty. Or if I were buying the wagon, I think I'd have the top-spec car, which gets adaptive dampers, because the car without adaptive dampers isn't actually a WRX. It's got the Lavorg suspension tune and feels a bit floaty. So... You'll have to read the review and we might talk about this in a little bit more detail next week, but Mm. there's a lot to the new WRX and it's still good fun. You just need to choose your spec wisely. Mm. There's always a but in there, isn't there? Um, J-Wo, the Honda HRV, we're actually going to talk about this in depth uh, next week as well, but just a bit of a teaser. How did you find it this week? Um, It was a very interesting experience and it like in some ways I absolutely loved it and in other ways I was disappointed. Um, I think the stuff that I was disappointed with we already knew about prior to me driving it because there's a lot of spec things whether it's like the four seat layout, the reduced um, boot capacity and then also the high pricing which just seems to be a Honda thing lately but the what I really enjoyed and was actually really pleasantly surprised about was how it feels like a Honda again. I feel like the most recent um, generation of Honda product was quite bland and almost, um, you know, it just lost its soul. And what we love about the Honda brand from like the 90s and 2000s is how the brand innovates and does cool design and sort of breaks them all a little bit, sort of like Subaru actually. Um, And this HRV felt more like a descendant of my parents' first-generation Honda CRV than anything that Honda's made over the last 10 years, maybe by the Type R. And um, 
it was their their hybrid technology is actually really impressive as well. Um, it's not quite Toyota levels of efficient, but it's um, very refined and much nicer to drive. And the de- the design grew on me a lot too because I got the um, the one pretty red one on the fleet, whereas everyone else got boring white or opal coloured ones. So <laughs> it's um, a nice red too. Yeah, I think the um, Honda PR liked me a little bit more than everybody else and wanted most <laughs> photos. Favoritism. <laughs> yeah, which I'll take in this case. Um, but, yeah, so I look forward to talking um, more about it with you guys next week um, and maybe answering any questions that readers might have or the team might have. But, um, yeah, pleasantly surprised, but it's not perfect, unfortunately. It's been a huge week in news and to help us get through some of the, the, the biggest stories, Jack Quick, Hello. Hello, Mandy. It's good to talk to you again. Absolutely. And it's good to talk about the Nissan Z pricing because that came out this week. Have we been pleasantly surprised at how affordable it is? Um, Personally, yes. I think a lot of people have actually. So the Nissan Z, one of Nissan's most important vehicles to becoming for a long time now, is going to be coming to Australia from the price of $73,300 before on-road costs, which is pretty good in my eyes. Um, so it's the uh, same price for both uh, the six-speed manual and the, the nine-speed auto. So like it doesn't cost more for the auto, which is nice. And um, so uh, Nissan says it's taken about a thousand orders, uh, deposits, I should say, of the of the said uh, so far, and seventy percent of those orders are from the manual, which is very exciting. And um, nice. personally, I it's a bit of a um, uh, strange opinion, but I wouldn't be going for the manual myself because with my Jimny, I'm sick of the manuals. I go for the auto instead. I've, I'm a bit lazy now, I'd like to say. Um, so with this said, even though it is at um, 73000 which is a good price, it's technically more expensive than the outgoing or dead, um, the 370Z, but it does undercut the, the Toyota Supra, which is one of its main competitors by a fair bit, which is very exciting and it's very tempting. Um, but the manual, uh, so the Supra is going to be coming with a manual soon. It was... Um, for now, uh, up since it's been an auto-only uh, situation. So at this stage, um, when the, the this new Nissan Z arrives, it's going to be uh, coming in the middle of 2022 and um, it's going to be powered by a very nice uh, three-litre twin-turbo V6 uh, with the twin-turbos. Oh, that sounds nice. Uh, it's going to be producing uh, 298 kilowatts of power and 475 newton metres of torque. Um, very well priced. Are you guys excited for it to be coming? Absolutely. I think you'd have to be, don't you? Um, And I think Nissan, although this car is built on the bones of the 370 and although it uses an Infiniti engine and it's not quite an all-new car, I think Nissan could have got away with charging a bit more for this. Uh, The Supra is meaningfully more expensive at the very top end of the range and even the entry-level models, 10, 12 grand pricier. Um, And the Z stacks up really well on the numbers. It looks really good inside and out. So, I think Nissan's on to a winner here and I hope they can get enough cars to meet demand in Australia. Yeah, I think that they've done a really good job with the price positioning. I think the specs line up really well with main competitors. Um, it's got a lot of grunt for the money. It's priced about the same as a, what was it, a BMW 230i coupe that they just yeah, um, detailed right. the other day. So it's in a really good spot and I think that especially now given the age of the Mustang. Um, a Mustang GT sort of looks a bit like old and cumbersome compared to a new Z. And I think I personally really like the fact that they've kept the Z so close to the concept and you can get that proto-spec car for a little bit more and make it look like you rolled it off the motor show floor. 
So I'm really excited to see them come here and I'd love to drive that engine with the manual because I drove a Q60, Infiniti Q60 Red Sport years ago with that twin turbo V6 and I love the performance of the engine, but it felt a bit disconnected in that car because of the seven-speed automatic and the um, steer-by-wire system. Or Is it steer-by-wire? Yeah, that they have in that car. It was one of Infiniti's great experiments, steer-by-wire, but um, it's taken a little while to catch on because that first system was... I don't know how to put this generously, a video game like. <laughs> and not in the good way. But um, yeah, so I think that with all the extra tech that's in this, in this new Z, as well as the new engine and all that kind of thing, it's, it's very much a Z for the modern age. And I'm really excited to see it in the flesh and to drive one myself because it looks awesome. Mm. Would you go auto or manual, Scully? I would absolutely go manual. Um, I have only ever owned manual cars and I completely understand why you would buy an auto because not everyone enjoys driving a manual every day and, you know, not everyone has a left leg that works really well, for example. I know that sounds like a really obvious thing, but, you know, some people can't operate a clutch comfortably. So, completely get why you'd buy the auto. But, yeah, for me, it has to be the manual. And if I am buying a car like the Z, I've probably got something more practical in the garage anyway. Mm-hmm, too true. Um, we'll stick with you, Scully. The Subaru Outback XT Turbo is coming to Australia. It sure is. So Subaru has been working on this car for a long time. The previous gen Outback had a 3.6-litre engine option, and it was a bit more powerful. It was just the, the more muscular engine than the base car, which is fine, but needs to be worked quite hard to go quickly and really makes you you feel like you're straining it if you've got a full load of people on board and you want to go uphill at 110 k's an hour. This turbo engine has been offered in the US since that car was launched and over there it makes some pretty healthy output. It's got 195 kilowatts of power and 376 newton meters, which is up about, I'm terrible at maths, I've just realized, is up about 60 kilowatts and uh, about 130 newton meters on the base engine. Subaru hasn't confirmed how much it'll cost nor what the range will look like, but the way we understand it is that Subaru Outback XT will just mean it's the turbo engine car, and then there'll be a range of different trim levels like the current Touring Sport that they already have in that range. Hopefully, it's priced right, and Subaru's pricing has been quite good recently, so that that gives us some confidence, but this really seems like a a logical move for Subaru Australia and one that opens the Outback up to a whole new group of customers who love the way it looks, love the interior space, but just didn't want to deal with that engine, which is fine, but nothing more. Oh, I want one so badly. <laughs> Ideally, I think I'd, I'd spec it in my dream world with the, the green paint that you get and on the sport model and with the green highlights. I love the look at that on the, the sport model, uh, which is the mid-range um, with the, the cool um, waterproof-esque seats. And oh, it's just so cool. I'd love to see that um, with a, a turbo engine and kind of have – the, the grunt it deserves, I believe. Um, I really found um, the Outbacks really comfortable when I've driven it in the past. And um, I think it'd be like an ultimate tour if it just had a little bit more grunt to get up the hills with people, which is what you do with a car like that. I also feel that this car, what do you reckon, Joe? The, the, the guys who, or gals who drove, you know, WRXs when they were younger now have a family. It's like, oh, this has sort of got a little bit of the WRX in it, a tiny little bit. 
it could be targeting that sort of potentially group. yeah and I th- I'd, arguably it's more than just a little bit of wrx because it's the same base engine that they use in the rex now so i think that um especially with the lack of diesel and six-cylinder options in the current outback lineup which were very popular with australian buyers historically i think it's uh we've been crying for that engine for ages so it's a it's a wonder that Subaru Australia has managed to make it happen given they would have had to do a lot of work to engineer it for right-hand drive and get it out of the Japanese factory and things like that so props to them and props to the Australian market for actually managing to get something they want from a manufacturer because it's it's been very hard of late um and I like Jack and Scott I'm quite excited to give that car a drive because I was very impressed with the top spec outback that um I, I published that review recently and the fact that it's so well priced given the size and the features on offer if they can get this if they can get an equivalent um 2.4 liter turbo one of that top spec model for under 60 grand you're laughing basically because it's huge and it's it's very very capable it'll be able to tow better with that engine so it just sort of adds that extra dimension of capability and performance that's just lacking in the current one and that can only be a good thing yeah um next story jack a a very famous toyota model has been axed this week yes very sad to see actually um so yeah famous very famous toyota model the toyota prius has been axed which is what was i should say now it's the, the correct tense <laughs> it's so sad to say that as the hybrid uh, car leader it started a revolution um with toyota leading the petrol electric hybrid craze now as a revolution craze how to, however you'd like to to view it from so um the Prius has been on uh, was on sale for 21 years in australia which is quite a long time and it stuck to the formula very well of having the petrol engine and the electric motor it didn't uh, stray from that formula at all but it was very very popular and um very efficient i i am um, i quite liked my time with the prius and um so over the over the 21 years it was on sale um over twenty thousand was sold um over the four generations it was uh, offered uh in in australia with so yeah, building off um from the prius um it's a little bit uh, i want to say this nicely archaic now toyota now offers this hybrid powertrain that was originally founded in the prius and a lot of its mainstream models think corolla rav4 camry kluger it's kind of populating throughout the entire range at uh, toyota range which is quite nice and it's becoming extremely popular with other brands as well and toyota was the 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 company that started that Toyota is kind of doubling down with the the EV st- the style of cars. Um, it recently unveiled a whole range of um, concept cars, which is quite exciting. And um, yeah, I, I'm sad to see it go. The thing with the Prius is it has done its job. It was meant to introduce hybrid True. power to the mainstream market. It was meant to bring it to Australia and introduce people to it. But We've now reached a point where it's not required anymore and the Corolla plays that role or the Yaris Cross plays that role. So short of turning it into an electric car flagship, which Toyota clearly doesn't want to do, there's no more place for that car and that's completely fine. It's, it's done its job. It's, it's like when you see a kid moving out from home. The parents have to let it go and the Prius is the same. <laughs> Very nicely said. Will it be missed, J-Wo? Um I think my attitude towards towards any industry icon or legend, regardless of whether you're talking about cars or something else, is that you have to respect the role that they've played in shaping what we know the industry to be today. And I think the Prius is a really clear example of just how um, 
you know, a brand like Toyota, which is, a, and, and how it started out, it was this boring, frumpy little thing that somehow managed to change the way that we view normal cars these days. And I actually wish that they continued with at least one more generation and, and turned it into like a, the next, because obviously, even though we're moving towards an all electric future, Toyota is one of the few brands that has sort of extended its um, target to hit all electric mobility, given how the role it plays in so many different markets across the world. So it would have been really cool to see the Prius go like that next step in hybrid powertrain development and be like some ridiculously aerodynamic car with like a fuel figure of like two liters per hundred Ks with like more power, you know, better engagement and whatever, and sort of set the scene for the next generation of Toyota hybrids. But I guess they can't be bothered and they'd rather use the existing passenger car lineup with um, how widely spread the hybrid technology is now. But it would have been cool to have it as like the, the petrol electric version of the Mirai sort of thing, given the Mirai is still that for um, hydrogen vehicles. So it's it's really sad to see it go. And I, I was actually having this conversation in the office the other day. I remember when everyone used to scoff at you having a Prius or, or a hybrid or whatever and, and look at us now, we're, all, we're crying out for more hybrids and as many electrified yep. vehicles as we can. So rest, cool thing, rest in peace. Now, J-Wo, Western Australia has joined what seems like the rest of Australia in introducing some EV rebates. Yes. So um, we've seen New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland and South Australia all introduce um, some form of electric vehicle rebate as well as either implement or plan some sort of like road tax to offset the lack of fuel excise, Victoria being the leader in that, unfortunately. Um, but um, Western Australia has announced that they're going to um, offer a $3,500 rebate for electric vehicle buyers spending less than $70,000 on their car. So it's got a bigger rebate than all the other states, which offer, I think, $3,000 across the board. And also the threshold for the purchase price is slightly higher. So I think in Victoria, it's like $67,800 or something really specific. In New South Wales, it's $68,000. And in Queensland, it's as, I think it's lower. It's $58,000. So um, yeah, it's part of a, a $60 million spend um, as part of the 2022 to 23 state budget in WA, um, driving the uptake of electric vehicles, um, which is Australia's largest geographical region. So you'd hope that they start getting some long range stuff over there soon. Um, <laughs> this, this announcement also means that every Australian state and territory now has some form of ease of ease support in place, um, independent of the federal government. Um, and yeah, so I'm interested to see here from the team, whether they think that, um, given the slight differences in approach between the states and territories, whether WA is the way to go or whether you like the model, um, employed by others. I think WA is sort of doing a mix of what other states have done. I mean, Victoria is standing alone in taxing EVs at the moment, and we've made our thoughts on that pretty clear on the podcast over the past call it six or eight months since it's been announced. Um, but it's pretty sensible to set a start date for your road tax so people can prepare. And it seems pretty sensible to subsidize EVs because that does make a difference in getting people through the door. So it's a little late to the party and it's not changing the game, but it does feel like WA's picked the best bits from other states and made it its own. Hmm. Indeed. And lastly, Jack, we have pricing for the Range Rover Sport. Yeah, so there's a, a new generation uh, Range Rover Sport priced from uh, 
quite expensive is how I'll, I'll lead with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, it starts from 140,000 at the range and uh, the range, Range Rover Sport. <laughs> and it goes all the way up to uh, 200,000 before on road costs and also before options, I should say. Which so no doubt there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So um, the highlights of this a new Range Rover Sport model include um, a new uh, longer range um, inline six, uh, six-cylinder uh, plug-in hybrid model. There's going to be a twin turbo V8 model and as well as a six-cylinder mild hybrid petrol and diesel models. But wait, that's not all. There's also going to be an EV model coming too, which just makes sense with the um, everything that's happening in the automotive world that Range Rover be doing an EV model of the Range Rover Sport 2, which is uh, quite exciting. So deliveries of this um, new Range Rover Sport are going to be uh, starting in the fourth quarter of 2022. Um, and then uh, the inline six um, models, the petrol, diesel, mild hybrid models are going to be coming in uh, 2023. And this EV model is going to be coming in 2024. So we'll have to wait a little while, but they're um, all confirmed for Australia. And um, I should mention as well, with this uh, new generation, it's roughly around about 20 grand more expensive than the outgoing generation, which is sounds like a lot, but when you put it in context of how much the car is, people will pay it. And like it's a new model, so it's and um, as we were talking about just before, there's going to be lots of option packages and you can spec the car however you want. But um, I'd love to know, guys, what do you think of the design of this new uh, generation Range Rover Sport? It looks like a modern Range Rover. Um, I know that's a really boring way to talk about it, but we now know what Range Rover and Land Rover are all about. And that's sort of evolving the designs of their icons with smoother edges and slimmer lighting and kind of richer details. I'm not so sure about the rear end from some of these pictures. It looks a little bit kind of monolithic. It sort of looks like a big chunk from the back, but I think in person it'll look quite sharp. So it sort of seems to tick all the boxes, although I can understand the theory that maybe it looks a bit too Velar. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, it looks like an enlarged Velar with a Jaguar F-Pace interior. It does come together well depending on the spec from the press images that we've seen. I Like the other two, I'm not sure about the rear. It sort of looks like the fascia that would belong on a ute Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a bit... Someone in Coventry just put your name on a hit list. Oh, well, uh, come find me. Um, but yeah, I just... It, considering how well proportioned the front and the side profiles are, I just don't know. I feel like there's a bit too much metal and tailgate and bulges and stuff in the rear end. And then also it's all being compressed into like a smaller area. So it just looks a little bit like bum up, which... It's not a good look for an SUV, I feel, but I'm sure to translate well in person. Um, I know Range Rover's mm. sort of doing this new minimalistic light signature and rear fascia thing that they've started with the big Range Rover and now they've translated to this. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting, but it seems like it also loses the three-row option that you get on the current one, which might be um, a knock against it for people who don't want to spend for the full-size Range Rover um, but want a third row, even if it's just for occasional use. If James goes missing, we need to interview Jerry McGovern, the head of design at Land Rover. That's where we're going first to find him. <laughs> and we'll wrap up on that note. Uh, news, hit that link at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Jack Quick. Thank you very much, Mandy. Paul Marek has been in Portugal driving the new Mazda CX-60, a car that's meant to take Mazda upmarket. Paul, what did you think? I thought the tarts were wonderful. Uh- <laughs> And Portuguese. <laughs> that's it for the Food Expert podcast. Thanks for coming on. Um, 
Okay, so look, I, I went into this uh, with a very open mind because generally I think Mazda products are pretty good and uh, I was interested to see how they would go with a product that they want to compete with things like X3, GLC, Q5. It is a big step up for them, right, um, in terms of where they want to aim. Um, obviously, we don't know pricing yet. Pricing is still yet to be announced for Australia, but we do know what it's priced at in Europe, and it's around that 70 ish $1,000 mark for the upper spec plug-in hybrid model. Um, and I'll preface this by saying that Mazda is developing a set of six-cylinder engines for this vehicle, so there'll be a six-cylinder turbo diesel and a six-cylinder petrol as well, and they'll be available in rear-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. Uh, but launching in Australia will be a naturally aspirated two-and-a-half-litre four-cylinder petrol for um, the CX-60, and then it will get followed by the top specification plug-in hybrid. Uh, in terms of that plug-in hybrid drivetrain, they've gone down the path of pairing a naturally aspirated two-and-a-half-litre with uh, an electric motor, and uh, it's, it's actually an interesting setup because uh, typically what... Uh, cars will do is either go down the path of using a continuously variable transmission, which um, gives you a smooth takeoff and you don't really notice any gear shifts. What Mazda has done though is they've implemented a new eight-speed automatic in this. And what it does is when you take off, it actually moves through the gears regardless of whether you're running on electric mode or using the internal combustion engine or in its hybrid mode. And as a result of that, you can feel some of that as you're sort of moving off from a, from a standing start. So it's not as smooth as it could be. Um, but in terms of power and torque, this is uh, the most powerful uh, Mazda product that they've ever launched. So 241 kilowatts of power, 500 newton meters of torque. Uh, it's a pretty sort of impressive set of numbers. This is a clean sheet design for Mazda. Is the range competitive with what we're getting from the Germans? And do you think it'll continue to stack up over the next couple of years? Uh, look, I, I personally find plug-in hybrids a bit pointless because you may as well just go down the path of just a normal hybrid if you want efficiency. Um, this requires you to charge it, which is which is fine. Uh, but in the case of this vehicle, it's AC only charging, so there's no fast charging option. Um, so you need to have a pretty meaty charger to get the two and a half hour claim charge time. And it's got a driving range of around sixty-ish kilometres, which is fine. Again, for a full for a full battery, uh, it uses a seventeen point eight kilowatt hour lithium ion battery. Um, but yeah, ultimately, once the battery's flat, you're then lugging around an extra two, 300 kilos worth of hybrid equipment that doesn't necessarily need to be there. Um, but I think this is a, bit, a vehicle they built for compliance for Europe because that's where it's going to be its primary market. And this allows them to tick all the um, EV boxes pretty sort of easily. Um, obviously, the, the plug-in hybrid is going to be a little bit heavier than some of the combustion-powered models. In your experience with, I believe it was a pre-production car as well, how did you find that it handled, given it's a much bigger vehicle, than, well, not that much bigger than a CX-5 dimensionally, but you know, it's a bigger, heavier car with a big powertrain underneath? Yeah, look, I think the handling was good. Uh, the steering was quite heavy. I wasn't expecting it to be as heavy as it is. Uh, I didn't love the ride. I think the ride still needs a little bit of work. It would crash over bumps, and, and it felt as though the ride had been tuned for the lighter vehicles, and then they just stuck all this extra weight on it. So I think Mazda really needs to work on that, especially considering Portuguese roads, the ones that we drove on were very smooth. So I think they were trying to hide a lot of that by driving on those roads. Um, I think the thing that impressed me, though, was the fuel economy. So we did a loop that was about 65, 70 kilometres thereabouts, and uh, the car returned an average of about 2 litres per 100 k's, and that was with a little bit of sporty driving in there as well. 
The other thing I liked is how punchy it is. When you bury the throttle, this thing absolutely moves. It feels like it has a whole lot more than 500 newton meters of torque. And I don't know where they've measured that, but um, that, that's obviously at a peak there. But it feels a whole, whole lot punchier throughout the rev band. So it's not like a diesel where it's there briefly. This feels like it just keeps pushing you. Um, and it'll do zero to 100, I think, in under six seconds or thereabouts. So that's, that's sort of pretty impressive in my eyes. In terms of this being a luxury proposition, so... They've gone with a passive damping setup, so no adaptive damping, no air suspension, which you can get on some of the other competitors. Um, so from that point of view, I think they've missed a trick there. I, I find that Mazda, they kind of think that their way is the right way and they don't really look at what others are doing. And I think that could be a mistake in this segment. It was fine when you were competing against um, vehicles that perhaps weren't that refined in the CX-5 segment. But in this segment, these are vehicles that have had a lot of... Um, a lot of cachet, a lot of history. So I think Mazda probably just needs to have another look at that. Um, and it sort of came down to the, the interiors. I thought they were nicely presented, but in the pre-production cars, I don't know, the materials just felt a little bit um, like a second thought. So where they could have used wood grain, they used like a faux carbon fibre thing that was flat printed. Uh, they have a model called the Takumi, which has all this... Um, sort of vegan interior it's got cloth along the dashboard it's quite a beautifully presented interior but they didn't have that ready for for our drive which i thought was bizarre um but yeah i, I think that um the interior does feel really nice but um is it as nice as an x3 or a glc i, I really want to test them back to back to get a proper sort of feel for it what about the tech because mazda cars at the moment have this great screen that you can't touch CX60's got what looks like a good digital dash, what looks like a big touchscreen in the dashboard. Does it feel like a step forward? It's a step forward, but it's not a step forward that bridges it to the Euros. So the infotainment system is just a bigger version of the infotainment system you can get in a Mazda 3, which is fine because that's not a bad system. The problem is, though, when you look at iDrive, which has remote connectivity, it has the ability to do a lot of things external to the car, downloading apps, all that kind of thing, the Mazda feels like it's a generation behind. And same with the screen ahead of the driver, there's a couple of different views you can configure, but ultimately it's not like a, a Benz or, or a Q5 where you can really go to town on that display. So I think that uh, the, the pricing will have to be commensurate of that. Like if they will have to really take that into account because ultimately you can't price it line ball with an X3 when you're not getting the same level of tech. Um, the, the screen's interesting as well because it's far enough away to not really be all that useful as a touchscreen. But apparently it is a touchscreen, but only when you're smartphone mirroring. So uh, when you have Apple CarPlay, oh, okay. which I don't really understand. Why not just make it a touchscreen for every other function? Because your passenger can, in theory, use it. It's not necessarily just the driver. So, um, yeah, I thought that was a little bit weird. In terms of space, um, leg and headroom in the front row is great. Second row, it's better than a CX-5, but not as spacious as I thought it was going to be. But that goes for the rest of the SUVs in this segment, or yeah. the segment they're aiming for. Uh, the boot was big. I love also with the PHEV, you can get a 1.5 kilowatt power outlet in the boot as well, which is useful for camping and things like that. Um, there is no vehicle to load or vehicle to grid ability, which is a little disappointing when you can get that stuff in Mitsubishi plug-in hybrids. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I liked it. Um, I thought it's it's an impressive vehicle. Whether it match, it all just comes down to price, right? And the price will determine what we compare it against. And 
and how successful it is against those comparisons. Well, speaking of the price positioning, obviously they're going for the Germans in terms of how the product looks, feels, and drives. But going by what we believe, it, it will likely be priced in line with something like a Lexus NX, which is sort of half a size smaller, mm -hmm. front-wheel drive base, exclusively four-cylinder powertrains. Against something like that, would that be make the Mazda more compelling based on your pretty brief drive of it? That's a good question. So the NX that I drove, I really liked. So from a drivetrain point of view, it was great. The hybrid drivetrain is excellent. The fuel economy was excellent as well. Um, the handling was reasonable. The tech was excellent. So you're getting that big screen, you're getting the Lexus Connect, whatever they, they all have different names, the Lexus, whatever. <laughs> um, so from that point of view, I think the Lexus is a better proposition. But in terms of space, the CX-60 is, is for, feels like a much bigger vehicle. Um, and I think it feels nicer inside as well. The Lexus kind of feels a bit like a Toyota RAV4 that's tarted up, whereas um, the CX-60 felt a whole lot more resolved. Um, so, yeah, look, I mean, if, if that's the price point they land at, I think that will be an interesting comparison. While we're talking pricing and before we wrap this up, the car that's coming to Australia first is not the plug-in hybrid. It's a 2.5-litre naturally aspirated engine. Based on your experience with that engine elsewhere in the Mazda world, should people rush out and go straight for the first engine that comes or just hold their fire a bit? I would hold my fire because a two and a half litre naturally aspirated four cylinder in a vehicle that size, um, I don't love the sound of. Yeah, it concerns me. <laughs> like, it, yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine, but just like the entry level CX-5 engines, um, it would just be adequate more than reasonable, I guess. <laughs> Would be the Actually, one thing I will say is that I find the limiting factor for a lot of the high-grade Mazdas of the current range, when you not just the CX-5, but even like CX-8 and CX-9, is that when, even with that base natural aspirator engine, once you get on the freeway, it's a little bit limited because it's only got six speeds. This yep. new one with eight speeds, I think, will actually help that a little bit to make it a better all-rounder. But yeah, I think depending on how much it weighs, because we haven't got a whole lot of specs out of Mazda for the other combustion engine models. It should be significantly lighter, which is why I think it might not be terrible. Yeah, and if Lexus can justify putting a two and a half litre naturally aspirated petrol in the base NX, I'm sure it'll be adequate. Mm. And then hopefully it's just priced accordingly so that mm. it's not, you know, 60, 70 grand for yeah. a car with that engine. It's worth calling out as well that the eight speed is not a torque converter. So one of the efficiencies they've been able to gain, and it was a 22% efficiency gain, was basically moving from a torque converter to a multi-plate clutch setup. And that means that it feels more like a manual when it engages and it doesn't have the slip that a torque converter has. And the slip that a torque converter has, um, obviously you get that, that slip uh, generates heat and that heat is lost as, as energy that you can otherwise be using. So um, I'll be keen to see how it feels with that engine uh, and gearbox combo as well, because it, it should actually make the drive experience better. So does that make it almost like an automated manual? Kind of, yeah. They, they Mercedes-Benz uses a similar yeah. setup in its nine-speed and it's yeah. like halfway between a torque converter and a dual clutch. So yeah. it uses yep. elements of both to make it smooth like a torque converter, but quick and exactly. more efficient like a dual clutch. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah exactly. Well, so if it's anything like that nine speed, it will be good. Yeah, <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> Perfect. That full review is live on Car Expert at the moment. Paul gave it an 8.3 out of 10, so make sure you check that out. Paul, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. G'day, William Stopford. G'day, Mandy Turner. You've been driving a, a, a rather luxurious SUV. I suppose you could call it the 2022 Jeep Grand Cherokee L. 
luxury. I suppose you could because that's what it's called. Hey. <laughs> so uh, would you believe that Jeep has not sold a three-row SUV here or in North America for, what, 12 years now? It's been a really long wow. time coming, but they finally have a three-row version of the Grand Cherokee. So that's what the L means. It's effectively a longer version of the new WL series Grand Cherokee with three rows of seating for seven seats in total. Um, And I got to go take it on some very, very poorly surfaced roads in New South Wales, um, but also off the beaten track as well. Okay. Um, What's the price of this one? Oh well, this we is this is a bone of contention with a with a lot of uh, commenters I've noticed. So the range opens at. Now keep in mind there are more affordable two row versions coming uh, in the fourth quarter of this year, but the L range starts at eighty two thousand two hundred and fifty dollars before on road costs and goes all the way up to. 115,450 before on roads, which makes actually the second most expensive Jeep that uh, has ever been sold here after the uh, Grand Cherokee Trackhawk, which was a very different beast. There's no diesel. So even though it accounted for, according to Jeep, around 57% of sales of the outgoing WK2 model, um, there's just no diesel available. And that's unfortunately a global thing. Um, So the new WL series hasn't been engineered with one. Um, We've also bid adieu to the SRT and Trackhawk models, um, the latter of which had a very, very yummy supercharged V8. Um, There is still the option of a 5.7 litre Hemi V8, but it is not coming here, which means that every single Grand Cherokee, at least until the 4xe plug-in hybrid uh, two-row model comes in the first quarter of next year, is powered by Stellantis is now, you know, a little bit old, um, Pentastar 3.6-litre V6 petrol engine. Why do Americans get to have all the fun? Yep. I don't well, understand. I, we love a V8. We love diesel as well, and it's a shame that you're not going to get a an overtly towing-focused engine, but at least give us the noisy petrol fun one. Yeah, look, I, I have a suspicion. Um, so Stellantis has just revealed a new... Uh, Hurricane inline six, three liter twin turbocharged inline six. It's available on two two tunes. There's also a plug-in hybrid version coming. Even the least powerful of the Hurricane sixes has 313 kilowatts and 635 newton meters of torque. So fingers crossed that that will eventually come to the Grand Cherokee because so far they've only revealed it for the Ram 1500 based Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer models. Um, but hopefully it's only a matter of time because the Hemi V8 uh, is certainly not the not the freshest or newest of engines and as we've seen, you know, the market kind of shift away from V8s. So the majority of Ford F-150s sold in the US, for example, are turbocharged six-cylinder models. So mm. You said at the beginning, Will, uh, you drove over some pretty ordinary roads. How did it handle them? Uh, honestly, the ride quality was really good. So uh, they basically had two uh, of the variants there. So there's only three variants in total, Night Eagle, uh, Limited, which they expect to be the volume seller, and the fancy Summit Reserve. Um, there's actually a much broader range of uh, Grand Cherokee trim levels available in the US, but they've kept it simple here. Um, but uh, even in the Limited, which doesn't have air suspension on these 
horrible roads, which were great. I love when a, when a manufacturer will send you down a horrible road. Um, the Limited actually had really good ride quality, so I can't wait to actually get my hands on one here um, on some of Brisbane's horrible roads and, and, and see how it goes. Um, but beyond that, um, it was a fair chunk of highway driving, but they also took us down a trail, which now the Grand Cherokee L from memory is not, it doesn't wear a trail rated badge like a lot of Jeep products do. Um, so it's not necessarily being pitched as a, as a go anywhere, really rugged, let's, hey, let's go do Moab, let's go do the Rubicon type Jeep. However, they sent us down this fire trail, which one had not been cleared. So the, oh, underbodies, wow. the underbodies of all of these Grand Cherokee L's will have been completely exfoliated. Um, but then... How to tell us you're not into off-roading without telling us you're not into off-roading. Use the word exfoliated. <laughs> I just don't get to do it very often. <laughs> but then the trail went, um, I, hey, and I never got, I didn't get stuck once. So there we go. Good. Um, but then the trail got uh, quite rocky. Uh, that was where the air suspension of the Summit Reserve came in handy. Now, keep in mind, we didn't get stuck in the Limited at all. So we had time in, in both back to back. Um, but the Summit Reserve with its air suspension, you can basically jack it up by an extra 60 mil. Uh, so that gives you a, a nice amount of extra clearance there. Um, and it, look, it is extremely satisfying. As fun as it is to go bush bashing in a Wrangler or a Gladiator, it is extremely satisfying to go down a rocky, you know, kind of mountainous trail while you've got massaging, ventilated uh, <laughs> leather seats uh, swaddling you. <laughs> you mentioned those seats. The interior on this looks really cool in photos. It's a big screen and what looked like some lovely materials, but Jeep has burned us before on that front. What's it like inside? Oh, look. Mm, okay, it looks... Uh, I, uh, the interior looks fantastic. There's no short answer to this, by the way, if you're expecting a simple yes or no. <laughs> you're not going to get one. Here's a random. We know you well enough tonight. It's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never get a simple answer. Um, look, it looks fantastic, but I think Jeep still could do a little bit more work here. So if you're comparing this against, you know, your typical ute-based SUVs, which, I mean, in all fairness, are considerably cheaper, like you're outgoing Everest and your Pajero Sport and all of that. Um, it's definitely a lot nicer in terms of materials. But things like the sides of the centre console, even in the Limited, which is, we're talking like, what, 90 grand, um, it's hard plastic. And then you step up to the Summit Reserve, which adds some nice kind of stitching details, and you think, oh, it's going to be really nice and softly padded everywhere. And it just, it kind of feels a little bit like a veneer. Um, some of the cut lines look a little bit wider than they should, and it was just a little bit, um, uh, just a little bit disappointed given the price point. Uh, but I think what what's interesting here is the pricing. So I mentioned before that it starts at eighty two grand. That actually makes it more expensive in base trim than even the most expensive Kluger or CX nine or Palisade in Australia. So over in the US, even the base model is around like five thousand US dollars more than a base model. Uh, Palisade or CX-9 or, or what have you. But there the range just keeps expanding. So you've got multiple up-spec models towards the, the top of the range that are more expensive than even the flagships of rivals. But here 
you know, even the base model is more expensive um, than a top spec Kluger or Palisade. So in that respect, if it was a little bit cheaper, I think some of the observations I made about the interior, I, I wouldn't be a, as critical of it. Um, but given the, the price point that they've put it at, I think there's probably a little bit more work they could do there. What did you think of the infotainment? Yeah, good. Um, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like you've had a few things to say about Uconnect 5. Was that you or was that somebody else? I'm a bit torn on it because in the Jeep Compass, which has a version of it, I Mm. was really quite disappointed. But I've also used a version of it in the Ram 1500, which is on a massive vertical screen and was really impressed by it. So the potential is clearly there, but Jeep's execution with that tech at my first experience left me really cold. Yeah, look, I generally like it, but I think sometimes it's a little bit fussy. Sometimes there's just a bit too much going on. But but overall, overall it works quite well. Okay. And the technology in this car. um, If you go up to the uh, Summit Reserve, um, you've got (laughs) the digital instrument cluster, which is standard on all models. Uh, In the Summit Reserve, uh, you can actually opt for night vision. So it's part of a $5,500 option package. Um, so the entire instrument cluster, you, you basically got the speed listed at the top and then you've got your temperature and fuel gauges at the bottom. And in between is just a, a like, like you've put on thermal goggles. No, not thermal goggles because that's something else. You've put on night vision night goggles. goggles. <laughs> You're on fire tonight, Will. While that is a cool feature, Will, though, there are other brands that have included or off- offered technology like that at a similar price point. Like you can get, you could get night vision in the Volkswagen Touareg, for example, for a, a certain period of time, and certain Mercs and Audis offer that kind of thing as well. Do you think? My, my main question is because we're sort of jumping through different topics, like uh, for pricing and. Um, you know, ability and things like that. Do you feel like something like Summit Reserve justifies its price point? Because when I did, as soon as we got the numbers out of Jeep a few months ago, my first thought was that is as expensive as like a high grade Audi Q7, which may not be as large, but is has a much more powerful engine because it's got, you can either get a, a V6 diesel, a turbocharged V6 petrol, you get a much more, I would assume a much more luxurious cabin with better tech. What do you, what do you feel the Summit Reserve or even like a limited at 90 grand offers compared to, to, to an equivalent rival that makes it worth consideration over something else. I see. I've mentioned that in the review as well. The Summit Reserve is really stretching the friendship because there are some features that are standard on it that really it would be nice to get lower in the model range. Um, and it's the only one that's got uh, selectable low-range gearing. It's the only one with air suspension. So if you want a lot of that stuff, you've got to step all the way up to something that you're absolutely right, is is right up against a lot of luxury brand rivals. Um, I think to, to kind of answer your question, what is the unique selling point of the Grand Cherokee L? I'm honestly not sure because in my, in my review, I was thinking, who is this vehicle actually targeted at in Australia? You've got a petrol V6 engine that is serviceable, but really nothing extraordinary um, when a lot of rivals will give you a decent diesel. Um, You've got a a good amount of third row space, but you've also got a similar amount of third row space in a Palisade. Um, I I think what I concluded in my review is, is this car is for someone who maybe is a little bit dubious about diesel, uh, who wants a good amount of cabin space, including a, a third row that can actually fit humans in. Um, 
And that actually has a decent amount of off-road ability because we took this uh, off-road in places I wouldn't I wouldn't have dared take a Kluger. <laughs> That's a very, very narrow niche. And then, of course, you've got your your loyal Jeep customers who will be, you know, potentially trading in a WK2 on a WL and will be overjoyed to finally have a, a third row option uh, in Jeep showrooms again. But it's a very narrow niche. And I, I like the car, but I think it's the pricing is just a little bit extravagant um, for that engine. Mm, and I feel like, especially at Summit Reserve money, all the stuff that you listed that the Jeep does well compared to most rivals can be serviced by a petrol Land Rover Discovery, which has a turbocharged six petrol or diesel as an option and can tow three and a half tons, which the Jeep can't. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, a, a top spec Grand Cherokee versus a base Discovery, we, we've all seen Land Rover option sheets. Um, there's, there's, <laughs> there's certainly... Uh, uh, plenty you can add on to the base spec. Um, but I just, I, I, this pricing is very, very ambitious for Jeep. And I think for a brand that, you know, they have had a setback. Their sales are well down from a few years ago, although they, they seem to actually be showing signs of, of, uh, of increasing. But this is a company that f- really has burned a lot of bridges with some people, people who have not been happy about after-sales service, people who haven't been happy about a lot of recalls that the, that the old Grand Cherokee suffered from, a company that's kind of taken a hit in terms of their reputation. Um, now they're, they're coming out and saying, oh, look, we want to be a premium brand. We're not going to offer uh, more affordable base models um, and we're going to introduce this Grand Cherokee, but, you know, we know that the towing capacity is down, but some buyers might just have to consider what they really need. I think it would have been a little bit more prudent of them to offer this at, at a lower price um, rather than this, this higher price point that it's at because that kind of exposes the, the inadequacies that it has. Overall, it's a good car, but I would be speaking much more glowingly of it had it been priced lower. It okay. does just feel like Jeep is asking a lot of money and then also asking customers to go a long way to meet it as well. And it feels like you can kind of do one of those two things. If you're going to ask people for a lot, you just have to meet them on their level and throw everything at them so there's no reason for them not to spend that money or you can charge less and expect customers to make some accommodations for you. But it kind of feels like Jeep is trying to do both and that may be a stretch. Yeah, and I, look, I'm, I'm genuinely hoping that um, the Hurricane 6 gets put into the Grand Cherokee and that it actually comes here. Um, and I'm really excited to get behind the wheel of the 4xe um, when it comes out. But right now, you know, this is a, a, a large SUV with pretty mediocre towing capacity, which, yeah, I know not everyone's towing giant freaking horse floats, uh, but it's still something that's that's regarded as important in this part of the market. And they've only given us just one engine option in the L for now, and it's, you know, it's pretty average. Yeah. You've given it a car expert rating of eight, and that review is live now to go and have a read-through. Thank you, William Stockford. Thanks, Mandy. There goes another car expert podcast. Now, Jay, what cars have we got coming up next week? Quite an interesting mix, actually. So we've got the Subaru WRX TS sports wagon so hot off scott's launch review which is now live on the site and we'll be talking about in further detail next week um we're getting our first taste as a team of the new wagon body wrx or lavorg as it's known in other markets um we've also got an updated spec hyundai santa fe active diesel so um part of that 
running change, there's a few spec differences and aesthetic changes for a couple of the different variants, including the Active. So it'll be good to refresh ourselves on that one. Uh, we've also got a Porsche Macan GTS, uh, a Skoda Kodiak Sportline. That's all of Melbourne. Um, we've got a base Nissan Patrol in Sydney, and then we've got a pair of Volkswagen R models um, for Chris Atkinson to send around Queensland res- Raceway. So stay tuned. Why two? Is it a wagon and a hatch? A Golf R hatch and the Tiguan R. So, oh, of course, yes. Yes. Tiguan. I forgot about um, that. Oh, that's going to be great. Yeah, I'll be really interested to see how the Tiguan goes because um, I, I only drove it for a night and I didn't drive it in much anger. But from what Paul told me when he filmed the video, um, he was very impressed with how capable it was and the wider team seemed to have similar thoughts. So mm. I imagine that um, it might be a little bit more sport than UV yeah, <laughs> on <yes>. track. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, very nice way of saying it. We'll have to get Atco on and um, talk about how they went. Fantastic. Uh, now, if you do have any feedback for us or any questions for the guys who are going to review the um, the Rex and the HRV next week, you can uh, put them through to podcast at carexpert.com.au. Scott Colley and James Wong, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.